Welcome back to part two of this magnificent book, Predictions 20 Years Later. I know you're our audience. I've got lots of lots of positive messages about part one, and I know part two will be absolutely fascinating. This book is so far ahead of its time, and it maps to so many concepts we've covered on the show, except it came before all those books as well. So it's great to have him back, the author of Predictions 20 Years Later, Theodore Modis. Welcome back. Thank you. I wanted to just map back to part one and a couple of concepts that were key. I love the idea of if rabbits are competing, they're competing for grass. So there's going to be a diminishing amount of grass. This maps very much to what we're going to talk about today, the limits of growth. And you map this to GDP and S-curves. You showed that the GDP and growth in the US, Japan, China and India, the latter display exponential growth. And we're seeing the fruits of what you saw back then today. Maybe you'll yeah. explain what you were doing here. Yeah. GDP follows a natural growth curve, which means that uh, it has a limited capacity to grow into, like the rabbits on the, on the fenced off grass field. There's only a certain amount of grass there. GDP is the same thing. The amount of growth, the, the, the economy goes into niches. It doesn't mean that it comes to a halt, but it may need another S-curve to follow up by changing the conditions. So the, the American GDP, the USA GDP, as you said, has been growing along an S-curve and has been slowing down because it's approaching its ceiling. I mentioned how the Japan GDP reached its ceiling 30 years ago. So I'm showing you the Japan GDP here, which as, as it's in the book, and, and you see that it followed an S-curve and it stopped growing in the early 90s, you know, and from then on, it was rather flat. When I finished that book in, and the white dots here are forecasts by IMF, I think, or by, or by the Japanese themselves, maybe optimistic, I'm arguing that there is no growth potential left. Now, the China and the India case is early on the S-curves. We see them here. And again, we have IMF forecasts with the white dots, which follow very well on the fitted. The, the gray lines are S-curves. The beginning, the beginnings of S-curves. The beginning of an S-curve is exponential. So we see that they're growing exponentially, both India and China on different scales, different currencies for that matter anyway. So we're talking about the growth potential, which the ceiling of these S-curves is far out of the screen here. We don't know how far it is. In fact, only assuming we can put some limit, only assuming that we've gotten beyond infant mortality, these S-curves have a difficulty starting. Like in the very beginning, there's fluctuations. And when the seedling is very young, Somebody might step on it, or even a rabbit may eat it, and so on. So it has to go beyond infant mortality before you can reliably forecast his S-curve continuation. So that's the case here. If I, this, this, uh, I'm sure now these economists have gone beyond infant mortality. But infant mortality ends at around 10% of the final ceiling. So they probably have gone beyond that. So the final ceiling of this development of GDP in China and India is, uh, I argue, uh, at best, uh, 10 times today's levels. These are very order of magnitude estimates, but 
it seems that uh, where we are, there's a lot of growth potential in, in India and China. It would be interesting to do China's curve again, because China left India behind and grew more aggressively. And I don't know where it stands on its S-curve right now. It may be approaching its midpoint. I don't know. I'm hypothesizing. But one way or another, in absolute sense, I say that we shouldn't expect more than 10 times the values you see here. I thought it was interesting where you said here, and I'll quote what you wrote in the book. You said yeah. a country's ability to produce industrial innovation has often been cited as a reason for successful economic development. And yet, in figure 2.13 of the book, you see that US patent applications as a percentage of world patent applications peaks in 1995. And then about a generation later from where the right, US right. GDP peaked, it would still seem that it is prosperity which provides a fertile ground for ingenuity and technological breakthroughs and not the other way around. I thought that yeah, was an interesting that's, point. That's a very interesting result that came out that uh, patents was a consequence rather than a driving force. It doesn't mean then uh, that uh, prosperity produces patents just because patents follow, but it excludes the possibility that patent is the one that produces prosperity because prosperity peaked before patents peaked. So you can have cause and effect here argues that the patents were rather a result than driving force. And then later on, you use it for Olympic gold medals. And I thought right. this was, again, fascinating. That was a little tricky because uh, gold medals have the tendency to be awarded to the, to the host country. So I excluded host countries when from this data to have it more as neutral as possible. But it does show this kind of life cycle type of thing with a maximum in, in the 40s, in the mid-40s for American share of Olympic medals and a decline ever since. It's, it's a consequence of the fact that new players come in. We have a team of competitors, a group of competitors, and to the extent that there are new, new ones coming into the competitive arena, the shares have to decline just because they have to add to 100%. So this was more obvious with even the GDP. There were, as a percentage of the world GDP, when you have uh, India and China rising, they have to take a, the share of the, GD, uh, the US GDP of the world share will go down because these young countries are grabbing share away. So that's that's what we see on this graph. There was a paper that absolutely piqued your interest. It was the J.C. Fisher and R.H. Pry paper. And I'm going to link to that because it's still available on the Internet. And it looked at the rate of substitution for a variety of applications and found that the speed at which a substitution takes place is not simply related to the improvements in technology or manufacturing or marketing or distribution or any other single factor but rather a measure of how much the new is better than the old in all those factors. When a substitution begins, you tell us, the new product, process, or service struggles hard to improve and demonstrate its advantages over the old one. As the newcomer finds recognition by achieving a small percentage of the old market, the threatened element redoubles its efforts to maintain or improve its position. Thus, the pace of innovation may increase significantly during the course of a substitution struggle. Now, this is exactly what we see yeah, in yeah. innovation all the time. And Before we go into the data, 
let me let me show the Fisher Price transformation, so to speak. That's what it's called, not so to speak. Here we see an S curve on the top, and if it goes to a hundred, if this is percentages, we have a, an efficiency. Let's say it goes from zero to hundred percent in a nice S curve way, natural growth. Now, if you plot, or if it's a substitution, you are substituting new for the old. So the new is growing from zero population to a maximum of 100 in a certain time. Now, if you plot the ratio new over old, and you plot it on a logarithmic paper, instead of an S-curve, you get a straight line. This is just a transformation, a mathematical transformation, but has the big advantage of visually being able to detect an S-curve. That is, if you see even three points fall in a straight line, you know there's probably an S-curve behind it. So it's a powerful tool. It was introduced by Fisher and Price, and I use it extensively just because I can evaluate intuitively the naturalness. To the extent that things are falling on a straight line on this logarithmic scale of new to old, I know we are following an S-curve. Let's give our audience a couple of examples. There's synthetic rubber, natural rubber. There's also horses for cars. Yeah, yeah. But the synthetic rubber has an interesting, interesting twist in it. Here is the horses for cars, you know, two S-curves, one going down for horses, one going up for cars on a linear scale. And here is the Fisher-Price. And uh, we have several of those. And in fact, all of them are parallel lines. Now, remember, this is a logarithmic scale of new to old. Therefore, straight line here means S-curve. So you see margarine for butter follows straight line. Synthetic or natural fibers, synthetic for natural fibers follows another straight line. And synthetic for natural rubber makes a little twist there because during the war, synthetic rubber became extremely desirable because Cut off plantations were plantations were cut off for uh, offshore plantations and so on, and the war demanded a lot of rubber. So we are having a very rapid increase of this new to old. The new is growing much faster than in, in other. See the other cases, they're parallel lines. So that means the rate of growth is comparable in these substitutions. But during the war, the, the need for synthetic rubber was so high. And the condition is so exceptional that we violate the natural trajectory and it goes much faster. It seems like another straight line, very rapidly growing straight line, means another short S-curve here, which takes place very quickly, reaches a maximum, and as soon as the war finishes, it drops down to continue the natural growth, because now there was no more reason to be unnatural about it. So... The, the black points are my updates. Fisher and Pry only published the white points. Uh, this is a graph I, I borrowed from their publication. And their data stopped here. And I updated with later on. And we see that the deviations from these S-curves everywhere, just because these S-curves are reaching, approaching the top of the ceiling. S-curves have deviations early on and late. Early on, because of infant mortality, you know, if it's very early, there's scattering. There's unforeseeable reasons for which natural growth is not followed if it's very small, the, the, the size we're talking about. And late, when you're approaching the ceiling, you break again into this chaotic type of 
behavior, just because uh, there's always a little bit of uh, natural rubber left. There's always a little bit of uh, natural fibers that don't get substituted in a specialized market niches. Or th These are deviations which are understandable when the major body of substitution has taken place already and we're approaching the the the, the living the, the the ceiling what i call the saturation level the you're approaching the capacity of the niche you're exhausting the niche you're filling we'll come back to that theodore because i think that's so interesting later on where you go well you can actually anticipate when it's time to introduce a new product in your product right, life cycle etc right, because right. of knowing that let's take it one level further to diseases you say here we think of diseases as species or of microorganisms competing for uh, uh, healthy humans there's an argument i don't know whether it's valid or not that uh, somebody with a serious disease is not victim to to a common cold anymore or, you know that is people die from cardiovascular diseases or from cancer they cannot die from both usually one is what uh, causes the death so here i have grouped grossly three categories cardiovascular, which is the major cause of death, cancer, which is uh, the second biggest and is growing, and all others together, which is basically declining. So this picture was published, I don't know where, with the a, with a straight lines. And, oh, no, it was published in the, my first book, Predictions, with the straight lines, and then the dots, the updates, ten, uh, 20 years later. So let, let me remind you now here that you know, we're seeing straight lines on a logarithmic scale, which means that uh, this is a declining S-curve. All others are declining according to a natural path. Cardiovascular was growing for many decades, and also cancer was growing for many decades, both of them almost parallel slopes. That is very similar S-curves, but much smaller magnitude for cancer than for cardiovascular. But now, remember, we have to, these are shares. So they have to add to 100%. So what we do is we have the declining one, which is going along its straight line. The growing one is going along the straight line. And then the the, the saturating, the, the basic competitor who is at maximum will go over a peak because they have to add to 100%. So this curved part is calculated from 100% minus the declining other and minus the cancer. Whatever is left is, is the data points that constitute the cardiovascular trajectory. And we see clearly that it goes over a maximum and it enters a declining trajectory. That is, in, in the 80s, in the, in the late 70s already, we start seeing the cardiovascular people die from cardiovascular diseases less every year in favor of more cancer victims. So I fit another straight line to the declining trajectory now. The cancer doesn't have to be refit because it never changed, but the cardiovascular entered the exiting course. So there's another straight line here. And I had anticipated back in 1992, when my first book was published, that by 1920, 1922, there would be equal amounts of people dying from cardiovascular and cancer diseases. We see already that there was some deviation here that is cardiovascular res resist 
the substitution a little bit in the expense of cancer, which is not growing as fast, but the description is qualitatively the same. And I just checked today how many people die from cardiovascular diseases and, and cancer. And the number I got is for 2019, the latest, that is four years ago, 670,000 cardiovascular deaths versus 602,000 cancer deaths. So four years ago, the difference was all, was only 10% difference between the two. I wouldn't be surprised if today we are very close to this crossing point, which may have moved a little bit farther down the line, that is around maybe 2030. No, no 2025. Yeah, if it's around here, 2025, 2028, something like this. So it just shows that uh, things do follow this logic, if I can call it this way, where diseases are competing for victims and the young one takes over from the from the old one. It's a fascinating way to think about it, Theodore, because I was looking at your book of my shoulder there, Natural Laws in, this, in Favor of the Decision Maker. And the one thing I, I realized from reading widely is there are natural laws to the universe. And they appear time and time again in this work, the same way diseases compete for humans or for bodies is the same way an organization an organization competes for customers. And, and I think I just wanted to emphasize that that that's what we see time and time again with your work. This is very cute. Let me talk about this because I like it. That's not mine. This is my kid's idea. But I, I got it from him with permission. Here we have substitution of uh, travel mean, means of travel, basically intercity, intercity travel in America. So mostly it was done by cars. Then it started beginning more and more done by planes. And all times it was done by trains and, uh, and buses. So you have three, three competitors again who are competing for travelers. Trains and buses declining. And it's roughly a straight line. I have trains and buses grouped together. You have private automobile, and uh, that has been growing. My data only started in, uh, in the mid-40s, so it has been growing up to then, going over a maximum and start declining because airplanes are taking over. So you can fit straight lines, and you see that the intercity traveling by cars will decline to be because people are taking the plane more and more often between cities in America. And by the mid-20s, these two should be comparable, even if the last 20 points that you see, the open circles here are the updates. The last 20 points are falling a little bit short on aeroplane, just because trains and buses refuse to go to absolute zero. Anyway, the, the thing that I like mostly about this is that when when the car, the, as a means of transport between cities in America was the, the private car, it was at the maximum. It was more than 90% of all travel was done by cars in the, in the mid-50s. And yet, the, the, the airplanes were rising. So, in fact, you see here, they're rising rather aggressively traveling by airplanes. So, even though it's only the level of 10%, the competitor, the car competitor, felt the, the, the attack of the airplanes. And you have at this point a Cadillac in the style of an airplane. The Marchetti says, to scare the devil, you dress like the devil. So in the in the mid-50s, for the car industry, the devil was the airplane. 
So here's a car that just uh, dresses like an airplane. <laughs> I thought it was cute. It goes a step further now because you then jump to fuel. So today we're seeing this energy crisis. We're seeing this competition for energy. I think it's important to say, say you have 100 people and diseases are competing for you. Businesses are competing for you. Transport Actually, systems are, are competing for you. But if there's increasing amount of people, that means an increasing share for all these different things. And it's very important to know the difference. And I thought that was an important fa factor. To well, the, 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 if, the, if the absolute number of people is increasing, the shares don't change because they increase both for one competitor and for the other, according to the advantage each competitor has. So when you look at the shares, the fact that the overlap envelope may increase or decrease is irrelevant. The, the substitution is on, on, on the genetic level, not on the, on the absolute numbers. Absolute numbers may, may fool you. In fact, the absolute numbers don't show at all this kind of clean-cut one-to-one substitution because they're both growing. You have cars for horses. Yeah, cars for horses. If you, these are the shares, very nice, clean-cut S-curves. But if you look at the absolute numbers of this, they're both growing. Cars are growing, horses are growing. Cars are growing a little faster than the horses. <laughs> and that's what makes a difference. But visually, you cannot tell who the winner is by looking at the absolute numbers. But sorry, you, and thank you for correcting me. What I meant was, you might think that your business is increasing in sales, but it's oh, right, st right, still right, the right. same share, which which is exactly what you corrected. So right, I right. thank you for doing that. I, I wanted to impress that mo that idea on our audience that, for example, an organization has a product, they've reached their capacity in a current country. And the way they mask that the fact that the product is declining is to move to a new territory. And exactly. we see that all the it's time. Opening, in innovation. Open up a new open up a new niche. A new area to grow into. Like new grass for the rabbits. Exactly. <laughs> no, you double the field. You buy the field of the neighbor and so on. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. So let's bring it, let's bring it now to fuel because okay. I mentioned that we're seeing energy crises today. We're seeing that you, you, something you said in part one is that you have these kind of blips like a war, and that will change the the pattern of things, but ultimately it will it will balance out later on. So maybe you'll take us a little bit through the fuel conundrum, and you've done a hell of a lot of work on this. Yeah, it was a big topic at the time; still is a big topic. <laughs> and in the book that you had, the, you're talking about the predictions ten years later, I saw an increase in the production of oil in the early tens. It was only up to here, and I say, "Oh, this is a fluctuation, probably." Well, it was not a fluctuation because that developed into the big uh, spike we see here. This is a more uh, recent data, and it's the production of uh, oil from hydraulic fracking. The, the fracking process is a different species of oil than the classical well-pumping oil. So, in fact, if I subtract from this the fracking, if I isolate the fracking, the, the continuation seems so there's a very small glitch around these years. That is the declining the production of oil through the, the traditional well mechanisms declined ever since the 70s and it continues to decline while uh, we're consuming much more oil thanks to the fracking. So if you subtract those two curves, you can isolate 
the, uh, the oil produced by fracking. And you see here the data, this is a new, new studies. Huh? I have a, a recent uh, publication on this, which you see what has been produced by fracking. And it's still growing. It will uh, go over a maximum and it will decline. This is the 90% confidence level of how it will happen. But cracking is not going to have the same story as the classical oil production that lasted over a century. It's going to be a shorter thing. In fact, here, I argue that by by the end of the 1930, fracking will be really back to very small amounts. There is a lot of criticism about fracking. There's a lot of opposition. And uh, plus the substitution of other means of uh, production for energy. So I'm not surprised that uh, at this picture, that is that uh, the oil produced by fracking is right now at its maximum, according to this, in the 20s. This, this stops in 1918, uh, in December of 18. So right now we're approximately at the maximum, and I expect it to, to decline, but we'll see. Then later on, you say per capita energy consumption worldwide is more than seven times greater today than it was 150 years ago. This increase, you tell us, took place not in a steady uniform rate or even in a random fashion, but in an S-curve shape. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. In fact, succession, succession of S-curves, because you had one that uh, hit the ceiling in the early 1920s and 30s, and then there was a second step who hit the second ceiling when my, my first book came out. My first book said that, oh, we, we expect another ceiling here, but they will pick up again later in the future. So the, the white dots confirmed that, uh, that forecast that indeed uh, 20 years later picked up again energy, world uh, energy consumption. If you, if you zoom back and you look at this evolution, you can imagine an overall S-curve, a big overall S-curve, with uh, this uh, wiggling around this overall S-curve, which is probably halfway, I don't know, it's difficult to see how how much this overall S-curve has advanced. But uh, what's interesting is that the actual data wiggle around this overall trend of growth. And uh, I isolated this trend by taking the ratio of the actual data to this smooth uh, S-curve that I fit it on the overall numbers. And that gives out the cycle because it goes above and below and above and below and etc. So that gives a cycle and the famous Kontrajev cycle. Economists know about this because Kontrajev was a, a Russian economist and he deduced a, a 50 to 60 year cycle. He couldn't pinpoint it more accurately than that. That was in the turn of the century in the, in the 1915, 1910, 1915, something like this. So at that time, Kontrajev said, there is a cyclical pattern here in the energy consumption. Of course, it has been criticized heavily by many economists because they argue that uh, econometric variables are not very concrete things. To, they're not very reliable. They're, they're subjective. They're, so, but when you have energy per capita in, uh, in tons equivalent of coal, then we're talking about concrete numbers here. We're not talking about subjective definitions. Because you prompted us to go to contractive cycles, I found that fascinating. And I also found it fascinating that probably like you, when 
he introduced these cycles he was rejected because it was almost too simplistic and yet you did an amazing thing where you mapped the number of hurricanes to overall weather yeah, data yeah in fact that that number where is that number hey I, I even updated that you see this is the number of major hurricanes over the atlantic and you see how the cycle goes this is the gray line is a 56 year cycle and you see how well it fits the number of hurricanes has been isolated because there was a gentle trend a growing trend. So I subtracted a straight, a straight line from minimal manipulation. And we see that uh, we, we find here three full cycles of the curve. And the latest point falls exactly because my book didn't have this last point. I just added this recently. And I was so pleased that it fell so nicely to complete the cycle. It's not always, doesn't always work so well because if you look at the electricity produced in America, things get messy. Uh, I had this up to here in my book, my first book, and it looked rather rather reasonable. Two types, electric, electric, electric energy and total primary energy. They, they seem to oscillate in rhythm with this snake, which is the same as the snake above, but it breaks down in recent years. Somehow, the, the beautiful agreement with a with a gray line breaks down on this variable it doesn't on the on the overall the number usual worldwide this is only for america okay the data are detailed uh, data consumption of electrical energy and total prime energy in the united states if you do the worldwide it's cleaner and it does go up in, in a better way what i took from that theodore and i'd love you to correct me if i'm wrong is that if you think about there's a subset, like you say later on, like Russian dolls, there's these nested S-curves, cascades of S-curves. And as an overall, maybe they match like a chondritive cycle. And that perhaps when we experience... Inside, they're smaller. Yeah, inside, yeah. they're smaller cycles. And then as a overall for the universe, for example, there's cycles happening above our... our our conception as a human being <laughs> yes, and they're actually uh, affecting the climate and things on the earth that we just are unfamiliar right. with that's right the problems with finding data you need accurate data going over decades if you talk about the universe you need data going over millennia <laughs> we have to so, tap into a different source of information for that but that's right the, the contradictive cycle then works beautifully when you talk about seasons of growth and i'm going to touch on this now but we're okay, going to cover good. that in a, in a new episode the next day because it deserves an episode on its own because it's beautifully written that part and it's really something that we're building towards as well so maybe we'll just yeah. plant the seed excuse the pun i'll tee us up for this and we'll come to it the next day you start with a, a quote by percy shelley it is if winter is here can spring be far behind and you say a common sense explanation of order chaos alternation associates economic summer seasons with conservatism and tight control in the spirit of not changing something that works well at the same time you tell us during economic winters erratic trial and error searches abound as means for finding new growth opportunities and give rise to chaotic fluctuations lovely Macroscopically, these are the, the 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 standing out characteristics of of winter and and summer. But of course, we have spring and fall, and we can go into more detail about the the characteristics of each of each season. 
and they are illuminating. They they give you they suggest uh, interpretations. They understanding on, on a more on a gut level than on a market level because these things happen in the market, but one doesn't notice them if you don't have this eyepiece uh, to look at. Ah, this is fall. This is and in the fall you have to be entrepreneurial <laughs> yeah no i love so, it I'm, I'm... this is a season like uh, no, no, we talk about the uh, next time yeah we'll talk about the next time the, the last thing i just wanted to say was you do dedicate a chapter to chaos and the one thing maybe we might share on that is that when you do get to the top of the s curve there's chaos at the top of the s curve so there's order order and then there's chaos right and then there's order again you can see right here the the real data is the dark black line and the smooth S-curves is the model. So you see that you're going rather closely model and data on the rising side, but when there's no more growth, you have fluctuations which seem of an erratic, chaotic nature. Again, you have a rising here, which doesn't show the fluctuations. Maybe they're still there, but you cannot see them because so the, the trend is rising so steeply that the, the fluctuations don't show up. And then when the when the rate of growth slows down or goes to zero, you see the fluctuations again. So I demonstrate this once with suppose you have an old man with shaking hands drawing an S-curve. So he goes like this, and obviously his hand shakes all the time. But while there is a big trend, it's less visible. When there's a flat trend, it's more visible. And now you can detect what's normal from what is uh, abnormal, let's say, because fluctuation in the middle on, on the rising part of the S-curve right here, you see this, this white dot is off the curve. His hand fluctuated upwards, but doesn't mean much because a little bit later, it happened in reality. The black dot took horizontally the time axis. So a little bit later in time, we saw what we saw as a fluctuation. Later on, we have the same thing, another fluctuation here, the overall trend now is slowing down. You, so you have another fluctuation comparable to the previous one. And now you have to wait a little longer to see it happen in the trend. So again, it happens. It's not absurd, but realistic, but it happens later. Well, if you go towards the top and then you get the same type of fluctuation, there's no time in the future that the trend has flattened completely. The S-curve is at the top. So there will be no time in the future where that point will be reached. Well, that kind of fluctuation is not normal. I mean, that is that goes outside the the natural. That's not a natural fluctuation, let's say. So essentially, the the system breaks down at that level when it's at the top of the curve. It's time to jump to a new one. Exactly. By this time, you are into chaos, and in chaos, there's a whole. Uh, type of whole set of behaviors which are appropriate for chaos, which are not appropriate for, for summer. Now, when things grow very fast, you're in the summer. In the summer, when things work like a clock, you don't innovate. Some people say, innovate, innovate, innovate. Wait, I say, you don't innovate all the time. Like, innovate here. Here you must innovate because you're stuck. But if things work like a charm, why innovate? <laughs> and this is so important to you say later on, and we'll talk about it when we talk yeah. about seasons is hiring for the season. If exactly. you're an innovator, if you're a chaotic mind, you don't want to be in the organization when it's in that bureaucracy exactly. stage. Theodore, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Author well, it's my pleasure too. <laughs> I'm revisiting my old uh, books.
as well it's a pleasure to do it with you sir and it's a pleasure to have you where can people find you if they need to find you growth-dynamics.com author of predictions one predictions 10 years later predictions 20 years and later theater there's bonus. one do there's one do now for 20 for 30 years later. exactly <laughs> there, there's a new lunar cycle that's due <laughs> right <laughs>